Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for this interview, and I'm speaking with William Kaiser. Dr. Kaiser is an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and is the author of several books about the American West. Today, we're going to be discussing his latest, Illusions of Empire, The Civil War and Reconstruction in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, which came out last year in 2022 with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, Welcome back to the New Books Network today, Billy. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Let's start by just hearing a little bit about you. I'm curious about your background and especially what I'm interested in is how you became interested in history. So I grew up in southern New Mexico in Las Cruces and um, and went to New Mexico State University and then went on to graduate school at Arizona State University. So I've lived my entire life in the southwest, and of course now I'm working in San Antonio, Texas. So, um, you know, very f- familiar with uh, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands region, having lived here for, for my whole life. Um, you know, my interest in history growing up really came from uh, or just... The region that I was in, um, you know, there being a lot of uh, just really rich, interesting history in southern New Mexico, um, in particular military and Native American history. Very early on um, in elementary school, I became interested in uh, the cavalry, the U.S. Dragoons, uh, Apache history in particular, and, um, and, and really enjoyed going with my dad to visit historic sites throughout the the region, old forts and, you know, um, uh, just those types of sites. I always really enjoyed visiting those historic sites and then reading about them and learning about them. So it started out just from, you know, the area where I was growing up and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, a hobby, I guess, of sorts with my dad, um, visiting those sites. And then once I got to college, it sort of became more serious in terms of, uh, of shifting from reading about books about this history to actually doing my own research and, and writing my own books. And what brought you to the topic of the book we're talking about today? You've written several books on the history of the American West. Uh, so why this one right here? What led you to this new take on the U.S.-Mexico borderlands during the Civil War itself? So this book in a lot of ways, came out of some of my previous books and research projects. Uh, I had previously been very interested in the Civil War era in New Mexico and um, and had written about it in a couple of my, uh, in my first two books. And in the course of writing those first two books, um, I encountered some references in some of the existing literature to... Um, uh, to Confederate operations in northern Mexico during the early Civil War when the, um, when the Texans were invading New Mexico. And I had never really thought a whole lot of it. And um, I think in, in one of my books, it was like one sentence that I referred to that topic. And then in, um, oh, around in 2019, I believe it was, um, a, a friend of mine, a, a scholar friend of mine, was working on a special issue of a Civil War history journal and was wondering if I had any topics that might be suitable for a journal article. And um, and at the time, I was just finishing up one of these other books, and, and this topic was kind of fresh on my mind. 
And so I pitched the idea of writing a journal article on Confederate diplomacy in Chihuahua and Sonora uh, in 1861 to 62. And I did end up writing that article. It was published in the Journal of the Civil War era. And, uh, and so that article then, in the process of researching and writing that article, I discovered that there was a lot of fascinating history here, uh, much of which I was not even really aware of because it's relatively obscure in the existing literature on the Civil War in the Southwest. So what originated as you know, a journal article looking at, at a very specific moment in 1861 to 62 with respect to um, a Confederate officer's diplomatic trip into northern Mexico evolved very quickly into a book-length project looking at the entire U.S.-Mexico border all the way down to um, uh, to the southern tip of Texas. So, you know, I kind of, uh, I guess, really went down that metaphorical rabbit hole um, with this project, and, uh, and, and this book is the result of that. And the story that you tell here is pretty pretty firmly situated within uh, this overarching concept that historians call greater reconstruction. Can you explain what that uh, term means and maybe some of its uh, significance in the historiography of uh, the, the 19th century of the American West and maybe a bit about how your book fits into this larger idea of greater reconstruction? Greater reconstruction is uh, an idea or concept that originated... About 20 years ago, uh, the historian Elliot West is credited with coining the term in an article that he published in the Western Historical Quarterly in 2003. And um, the concept argues that Reconstruction after the Civil War was much more expansive than what occurred in the South or, or the, former 11, the 11 former Confederate states. And of course, you know, the, the greater reconstruction concept doesn't attempt to minimize the significance of reconstructing the South uh, without slavery. That certainly was the primary goal of, um, of reconstruction policy, especially as pursued by the radical Republicans in Congress after the Civil War. But what Elliot West argued then and what many other historians have sort of built on uh, over the last two decades developing the greater reconstruction concept is that Reconstruction also involved a significant and far-reaching projection of federal power westward throughout much of, of the Western Hemisphere, North America and the Western Hemisphere, and not just a projection of federal power southward into the former Confederate states. So it's an idea that looks at uh, the ways in which Union victory in the Civil War and the resulting empowerment of the U.S. federal government had very direct and permanent impacts on other parts of North America, uh, especially the United States and the American West, the Southwest borderlands. But also, even as I argue in this book, uh, it impacted the, much of the Western Hemisphere, in particular Mexico, because of, uh, of Mexico's proximity to the United States, Mexico's various roles in the U.S. Civil War, and the ways in which uh, the U.S. government sort of um, really became deeply involved in Mexico after the Civil War economically, politically, in ways that no longer aimed to acquire territory from Mexico, but still aimed to sort of control and direct the course of events, political, economic, especially in, in Mexico. So greater reconstruction is really a concept that allows us to consider the hemispheric impacts of Union victory in the Civil War and to realize that the Civil War and the, the outcomes of the Civil War not only fundamentally transformed the Old South, but also fundamentally transformed the American West, the American Southwest, and, uh, and, and, and much of, uh, of the regions bordering the United States. Well, let's get into the book a bit and the narrative uh, that, that, that you tell about the region here. Let's start by just setting the scene a bit. Can you explain the context for, for this book? Where are we talking about? Who are some of the major players in this region? And what are the relationships to one another here in the early to middle decades of the 19th century? 
So the book covers all of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands from California to Texas, Baja, California to Tamaulipas. So it's a very uh, geographically expansive look at the U.S.-Mexico border during the Civil War era. And it also covers a period that I, I specifically say Civil War era and not just Civil War because the book begins in the 1840s and 50s setting the stage for events during the Civil War and it ends in the late 1860s and early 1870s uh, during Reconstruction. So the Civil War itself from 1861 to 65 is really is the main focus, but the book uh, extends beyond that uh, both before the Civil War and after the Civil War, temporally speaking, in order to really, um, in order to really make the point of the ways in which these events during the Civil War impacted the region over a very long period of time. As far as major players in the region, uh, there were there were many. This was um, of the this is my fifth book, and of the five books, this is by far the most complicated and complex in terms of uh, my experience writing it. Because one of the challenges that I really faced was dealing with literally dozens upon dozens of very important historical actors from a wide variety of nations, of, um, of indigenous groups, um, stateless actors, with a wide variety of motivations and interests that oftentimes were not clear um, and oftentimes were purposely convoluted because there was a lot of sort of uh, intrigue, secrecy, um, machinations, uh, diplomatic and political going on. Uh, these actors came from some from France, some from Mexico, some from the Confederacy, some from uh, the United States, the Union, uh, some from various indigenous groups, the uh, the Apaches, the Comanches. Some of them were um, were Mexican actors who were not specifically tied to Mexico, uh, who were uh, sort of revolutionary groups. Some of them were state governors in Mexico who were acting independently during the Civil War um, in ways that would not typically reflect a governor's political sort of responsibilities and actions. So there was a lot of, uh, of independent scheming going on in which dozens of actors were attempting to take advantage of the chaos that arose from both the American Civil War and also from the simultaneous French intervention in Mexico. And, you know, the result is a really complicated environment throughout the U.S.-Mexico border that I think really exemplifies the borderlands concept. And by that, I mean the borderlands in which no individual entity, in particular nation states, is able to exercise complete power and control. And what emerges is sort of a plurality of sovereignty in which numerous different groups and actors are competing for control uh, in, a, in, in this sort of contested environment on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, let's talk about uh, what, you, what you just called the chaos of the Civil War a bit. And uh, you argue in the book that, uh, as, as you put it, the turmoil of the Civil War transcended national boundaries. And uh, the American Civil War is often told as a very national, you know, uh, uh, North versus South, United States, Confederate States of America kind of story. And yet a big part of this book is how Mexico is implicated in, in the Civil War throughout this conflict. So could you talk a bit about how Mexico is implicated, especially during the early days of the Civil War, and how Mexican officials are reacting to and interpreting uh, the, the the coming of the Civil War and the early events of the war itself? So it's it's typically, when, when historians think about Civil War diplomacy and international relations, uh, generally Europe is what comes to mind, in particular England and France. And Mexico has always been sort of a historiographic blind spot in this respect. But one of the really interesting things about Mexico and the U.S. Civil War, and I point this out in the introduction to the book, I, I begin the book with this, is when the Civil War began, 
the highest ranking uh, leaders on both sides, Abraham Lincoln and, and Secretary of State William Seward with the U.S., and Jefferson Davis and uh, the Confederate Secretary of State Robert Toombs, they immediately begin uh, strategizing and thinking about Mexico and how Mexico could benefit or inf benefit them and influence their uh, their objectives in the Civil War. And it's really fascinating to see you know, this is in in April and and May of 1861. This is right after the firing on Fort Sumter, so the war had begun. But it's before the first Battle of Bull Run. So it's before anybody knew that this was going to be a really long, bloody four-year war. And almost simultaneously, Lincoln and some of his cabinet officials and Jefferson Davis and some of his officials had meetings in Washington, D.C. And, um, and Richmond and were talking about their strategy towards Mexico. And in the Confederate case... They were particularly interested in Mexico for a couple of reasons. First, they thought that they, um, the Confederates really wanted to, to extract formal recognition from a foreign country. They thought that that was extremely important to be formally recognized um, as an independent Confederate States of America. And they hoped that Mexico might be the first country to do this. Uh, and one of the arguments that they used the Confederate officials used was that Mexico already had various forms of slavery there, in particular debt peonage and, um, and Indian slavery, and that this similarity in, uh, in um, slave institutions between Mexico and the South might give way to you know, some type of, of broader relationship or alliance. From the Union perspective, um, Lincoln and, uh, and his advisors were particularly concerned that Mexico might recognize the Confederacy and that Mexico might materially aid the Confederacy. This is especially true with respect to the Union naval blockade of the South that was put in uh, into effect at the very beginning of the Civil War. And Mexico, of course, was the only foreign nation that bordered on the Confederacy, that border being, you know, much of Texas. So the North was especially concerned that Mexico could help the Confederacy strategically um, getting around the Union naval blockade to import and export uh, supplies, cotton, uh, war material, etc. So Mexico is sort of dragged into the Civil War as early as May of 1861. And, and in that month, the North and the South each sent a diplomat to Mexico City to try to, um, to meet with the Mexican president, Benito Juarez. And uh, the Southern diplomat was a, a gentleman named John Pickett, who was sent to Mexico City and um, began to try to establish formal diplomatic relations, some form of a cooperative alliance, if possible, with the Mexican government. And, um, and Pickett ended up, uh, he failed quite miserably in that objective. Not only um, was he unable to even meet with President Juarez individually, um, but not long after he arrived in Mexico City, he was arrested for beating up a Union sympathizer in a saloon. He tried to claim diplomatic immunity to get out of jail, and when that failed, he bribed his way out of jail and ran to Veracruz, got on a ship, and fled from Mexico, and then spent much of the rest of the Civil War in Richmond, trying to argue with the Confederate government to reimburse him for the money that he lost bribing his way out of jail in Mexico. So in, in some ways, it's kind of a comical affair, but it really is illustrative of the Confederacy's much broader failure throughout the Civil War to establish formal lines of diplomacy with foreign nations. And once Pickett's outreach failed, the Confederacy then fell back throughout the rest of the Civil War on irregular forms of diplomacy that they carried out not with the Mexican national government in Mexico City, but with individual governors in the border states. And that's really uh, what a lot of the focus of my book is, is this, these forms of irregular diplomacy and independent scheming that, um, that were, were carried out along the border. And then throughout the war, the Confederacy was continuously trying to uh, to cut different types of deals uh, with the governors in, in Chihuahua, Sonora, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, Coahuila. And at the same time, the Union 
was trying to sabotage those efforts and sending their own agents and diplomats into northern Mexico to try to make sure that the Confederacy failed, which is really illustrative of how seriously the Union took the situation because northerners were fearful of any type of Mexican cooperation with the Confederacy and how that might uh, how that might benefit or help the Confederates in their broader war efforts. So, yeah, this is all very early on in, in the Civil War, just in the first few months. And all of this becomes much more complicated as time goes on because in 1862, the French invade Mexico uh, as what, part of the beginning of what we call the French intervention. And so by, by the middle of 1862, Mexico is also at war, but with uh, French imperialists. And what this does is this completely disrupts the political structure of Mexico. The, um, the Mexican president, Benito Juarez, is forced to flee from Mexico City, and he runs his government sort of from various locations throughout Mexico over the ensuing four to five years. Um, it's sort of an itinerant government uh, moving around from one place to another or as he's trying to evade capture by the French imperialists. And this ends up contributing to this borderlands environment of contested power, and it also enables Confederate and Union scheming in Mexico because in the absence of firm political control by the, uh, by the Mexican president and his government, these governors in the northern Mexican states have wide autonomy to, um, to cut deals with, uh, with foreign agents that otherwise they never would have been able to do. In reality, what some of these Mexican governors were doing when they were arranging treaties and diplomatic agreements with Confederate officers is they were these Mexican governors were essentially committing treason against the Mexican government because diplomacy is, is supposed to be conducted at the national level, not by individual states and their leaders. So the as the Civil War progresses, the situation becomes increasingly chaotic as a result of the um, of the French invasion of Mexico. But nonetheless, uh, it, it, almost from the moment that the Civil War began in April of 1861, northern and southern figureheads had their sights firmly set on Mexico as a country and a government and a region that could materially impact the outcome of the U.S. Civil War. Well, since you brought up the the French intervention, uh, I want to ask a little bit more about that because that was the kind of a kind of event that I, I had heard about before. I knew that that something like that had happened, but I didn't know any of the details. And I found myself kind of fascinated with with it and the presence that it plays in in this story. Can you talk a little bit about the French intervention? And one of the things that you argue in the book is that the French crisis in Mexico and the American Civil War are these kind of mutually reinforcing events. So how were these two events uh, actually connected in surveys? So the French invasion of Mexico was actually a direct result of the U.S. Civil War. And what I mean by that is when the United States broke up essentially and uh, you know through southern secession and and the civil war began it created a situation where the US government and the US army was distracted fighting the confederacy and was unable to um to address or confront any foreign threats in the western hemisphere what this meant was that the Monroe doctrine which had been in effect since 1823 and basically was a, uh, a diplomatic statement telling foreign countries to stay out of the Western Hemisphere. Um, the Monroe Doctrine became temporarily unenforceable by the U.S. government because the the U.S. was was fighting the Confederacy. So the French Emperor Napoleon III took advantage of this situation to try to reinstitute a French monarchy in the Western Hemisphere. And the background for this, it's important to know that Mexico, from the time it became independent in 1821, suffered from severe political and economic instability and also uh, became deeply indebted to several European nations, in particular England, Spain, and France. The Mexican government took out loans continuously year after year um, in an attempt to... Um, to 
to remain solvent and to uh, maintain its power. But these loans just really added up and the interest on the loans added up so that by the early 1860s, Mexico owed enormous amounts of money to its European creditors. And in 1861, England, Spain, and France formed what was called the Tripartite Alliance, in which they aimed to extract debt repayments from Mexico to um, force Mexico to repay some of it, the money that it owed. And, um, and ultimately, that Tripartite Alliance evolved into the French intervention but as it evolved, the Spanish and the British pulled out uh, when it became clear that the French intended to actually send the, uh, an army to invade Mexico. The British and the Spanish didn't want to pursue a military intervention in Mexico to extract debt payments. So Napoleon III ends up uh, in 1862 unilaterally outside of this tripartite alliance um, invading Mexico. And he uses the excuse of he's trying to, um, to, to reclaim money that the Mexican government owes, and, and that's the justification for his invasion. But in reality, his broader purpose was to, um, was to impose a monarchy in Mexico, that he, a puppet government that he would control, and, um, and, and then to, which would then allow France to sort of recolonize Mexico and benefit economically from Mexico's natural resources as a, uh, as a new colony of the French. So with this purpose in mind, Napoleon sends an army in 1862. They invade Mexico uh, through Veracruz. They are initially turned back in May of 1862 at the first Battle of Puebla. Um, this was Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, 1862. The, um, the Mexican Republican forces uh, of Governor, um, President Juarez turned back the initial French invasion. Um, but really all that did was, uh, was temporarily postpone the French and their advance into Mexico City. The following year, the French army occupies Mexico City and um, President Juarez is forced to flee with his government. And Juarez spends the next four years sort of on the run throughout northern Mexico, trying to carry on his war against the um, uh, against the French imperialists and avoid being captured. If he's captured, that's kind of the end game, and the French would have effectively uh, emerge victorious in this war. So, the the French intervention and civil war were mutually reinforcing because. The French invasion would not have happened had the United States not been involved in the Civil War and therefore unable to confront the French military invasion um, in, um, in Mexico in alignment with the Monroe Doctrine. And at the same time, the, the United States, the, the French intervention in some ways helped to prolong the Civil War and it helped, especially it helped the Southern Confederacy in their war effort because the French intervention created this chaotic political, diplomatic, economic situation in Mexico that Confederate agents were able to take advantage of, especially in northeastern Mexico and south Texas, where there was a, um, a continuous uh, flow of war material from uh, mostly from Europe coming in um, through northeastern Mexico around the Union Naval Blockade and into Texas and vice versa, a significant amount of southern cotton was being exported through Texas down into northeastern Mexico around the Naval Blockade, uh, loaded onto ships on the coast of uh, Mexico and Tamaulipas and then sent off to, um, to Europe. And that cotton was basically what the southern, uh, what Confederates were using as a form of currency to purchase uh, guns, ammunition, uniforms, various type of war material that was produced in Europe because Confederate money was virtually worthless. So cotton exports provided the Confederacy with their purchasing power abroad. So in that sense, the, the, the chaos caused by the French intervention enabled the, uh, uh, the South to take 
more effective advantage of its border with Mexico to circumvent the Union naval blockade in ways that benefited Confederate war efforts. And eventually, excuse me, uh, just to, to kind of bring the French intervention full circle, um, once the Civil War ended in April of 1865, the U.S. government immediately shifted its attention to the U.S.-Mexico border to, to try to kick the French out of Mexico. And uh, President um, Johnson and Ulysses S. Grant, uh, the U.S. Army commander, sent 50,000 U.S. troops down to the Texas border as a show of force and a threat to, um, to the French imperialists in Mexico. Basically, those 50,000 troops were prepared to invade Mexico and fight the French and, and eliminate that European presence in um, uh, in Mexico because that was viewed as uh, the monarch the monarchy in Mexico of um, of Emperor Maximilian was viewed as a threat to American democracy. The idea being that you know democracy and, and monarchy are antithetical um, systems that could not coexist side by side in the Western Hemisphere. So in once the United States government emerges from the Civil War, having defeated the Confederacy they're able to shift and, and project that uh, federal power. This, this comes back to the greater reconstruction idea. They're projecting federal power in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands through a 50,000-man uh, army in order to directly influence the course of events in Mexico. And very quickly, the French emperor Napoleon III, uh, he rescinds his support for Emperor Maximilian and his puppet emperor in Mexico. Uh, Napoleon has no stomach for a, a war with the United States. And, and, and this goes back to how the two, the, the Civil War and French intervention, were mutually reinforcing. As soon as the Civil War ends, the United States shifts its focus and the French pull out of Mexico to avoid a war with the United States. So this book is called uh, Illusions of Empire, and, and throughout the book you have Confederate officials who are projecting their dreams of, of a, a, a southern slave empire onto the American West, onto the Mexican borderlands. How did places, the, the, the states that you're talking about, places like Sonora and Chihuahua, how are they impacting strategy and diplomacy and the kind of schemes that you're talking about, especially in, in, in the South in this story? How are these places central to these sort of Southern imperial ideas? So when it comes to, um, to the idea of empire, uh, and, and especially illusions of empire, which I've titled the book, Confederate figureheads, politicians, slave owners, um, had had really been scheming for a long time before the Civil War to expand na national boundaries into Mexico, into the Caribbean, uh, Cuba especially, but also Caribbean islands. Um, the Knights of the Golden Circle was sort of um, central to this idea of expanding U.S. borders southward into regions that would be conducive to plantation economies and to um, to chattel slavery as a way of, of increasing southern power, political power, adding more um, adding more states, pro-slavery states to the United States so that there would be more pro-slavery representation in Congress, in the Senate, in the House in order to, to preserve slavery as a legal institution in the United States. So this was really, these illusions of empire during the Civil War from a Confederate standpoint were really the latest in a long line of 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 southern ideologues and um, and their their attempts to expand US boundaries and to create a, a, a really a southern empire of slavery across the western hemisphere and in re with respect to the civil war when it begins confederate objectives in the context of empire are different depending on whether we're talking about northeastern Mexico or northwestern Mexico. In northeastern Mexico, this is Coahuila, uh, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, Confederates were primarily interested in creating alliances with local politicians, governors, and, uh, and businessmen and others in order to protect their economic lifeline around the naval blockade and to ensure that um, that the ports of entry along the Rio Grande, along the 
the international border remained open to them. In northwestern Mexico, Chihuahua and Sonora, the Confederates had very different ideas in mind. They actually aimed to not just create uh, some form of alliance with the governors uh, in those two states, which were uh, Ignacio Pesquera in Sonora and, and Luis Pedrazas in Chihuahua, but Confederate leaders actually wanted to take physical possession of Chihuahua and Sonora and add them to the Southern Confederacy as new states. They saw Chihuahua and Sonora as extensions of Texas geographically, and this was part of the Confederate invasion of New Mexico in 1861, where the Confederacy, and again, this is sort of an illusion of empire, an illusion that the Confederacy had of a transcontinental empire stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So what they were really trying to do in 1861, the Confederates, when they invaded New Mexico, was to take possession of New Mexico and in so doing, had they been successful, they would have expanded the Confederacy's boundaries all the way to California. And as part of that invasion of New Mexico, the uh, Confederate commander, Henry, General Henry Hopkins Sibley, sent one of his, um, his second-ranking officers, Colonel James Riley, into Mexico to pursue this, this uh, diplomatic mission. Really, it was, it was scheming. Um, diplomatic scheming to try to determine if the governors in Chihuahua and Sonora might be willing to essentially commit treason and secede from Mexico and join the Confederacy. And what that would have done, if it had been successful, was it would have even further expanded the Confederacy's boundaries westward. So hypothetically, the Confederacy aimed to take control of New Mexico territory and Chihuahua and Sonora. And what this would have meant strategically is even if the Confederacy had failed to take California, if they had New Mexico, Chihuahua, and Sonora, that would give them a, an outlet on the Pacific Ocean because Sonora had a, a, a seaport at Wymus on the Gulf of California, which, um, you know, which, which would have given them access to the Pacific. So in the, in the context of an, an illusion of empire, the, the empire here was was a, a Pacific empire that the Confederacy was was attempting to obtain uh, through the invasion of New Mexico and through these these diplomatic machinations in Chihuahua and Sonora. And ultimately, neither of the governors in those states uh, went along with the plan. They both completely rejected the Confederate, um, these overtures from Colonel Riley, um, in part because they were fearful of the Union response. At one point, the uh, the Union Department commander in California, uh, General George Wright, sent a letter to uh, Sonora Governor Ignacio Pesquera threatening that if he cooperated with the Confederates, then the Union would send 10,000 troops from California to invade Sonora and and lay waste to the entire state in order to uh, to prevent the Confederates from gaining a foothold there. So that's an example, again, of of the Union response to Confederate scheming in northern Mexico, where you know the Union was was concerned enough about the possible impacts of a Confederate alliance in northern Mexico that they were were sending that they were they were were ready and willing to invade northern Mexico during the Civil War uh, if it meant defeating the Confederates there. So. You know, and, and of course, all of this was, you know, to the title of the book, really, really quite illusory. It was an illusion of empire. The Confederates, um, you know, they, they really failed miserably in these attempts. The invasion of New Mexico was turned back in March of 1862 at the Battle of Glorieta, where, um, where the Confederates lost and retreated all the way back to Texas. The um, Colonel Riley, his, his uh, attempts to establish diplomacy and to convince Mexican governors to secede from Mexico and join the Confederacy, that failed. Uh, and and Riley left Mexico having achieved nothing um, of any material value to the Confederacy. And in, and in reality, the Confederates didn't have, they didn't have the power uh, militarily, economically, diplomatically to, um, to really assert their will in these U.S.-Mexico borderlands at the time, uh, and so it was it was really wishful thinking on their part that they would be able to um, 
you know, to, to establish and sustain a, a transcontinental Atlantic to Pacific empire with just a few thousand troops that they sent into New Mexico in 1861. So I'm curious about the end of this story. Uh, the Civil War in the United States concludes in 1865. Uh, the French crisis uh, uh, concludes uh, around, around the same time in the mid-1860s. And how do these moments change the borderlands? And then is there a, a postscript to this story? Does stability ever arrive in, in this region? Um, is it still even, you know, through the 20th century, even up through today, a place that's defined by these kind of international machinations that you're describing in the book? The the end of the Civil War and of the French intervention, uh, which the French intervention officially ends in 1867, two years after the Civil War. The outcomes of those two conflicts had very significant effects on the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and on Mexico in particular, all within the context of, of, of the greater reconstruction idea that we talked about earlier. One of, the, one of the immediate outcomes was, of course, that the French were, um, were eliminated from Mexico and Mexico remained a, a, a republic and President Juarez was able to retain power there. And another really important outcome of this was that relations between the U.S. and Mexico fundamentally changed after this point. Prior to the Civil War, the United States for several decades, going back to Mexican independence in the 1820s, had always behaved very aggressively towards Mexico, They, uh, especially insofar as obtaining territory from Mexico in order to expand American national boundaries. The U.S. was able to take advantage on numerous occasions in the 1830s and 40s and 50s of Mexico's political um, and, uh, and economic weakness. And the two uh, most glaring examples of this are the the U.S. Mexico War in 1846 to 48, which ended in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and resulted in Mexico ceding almost half of its territory to the United States. And again in 1854, the Gadsden Purchase, where additional Mexican territory was uh, was acquired through a treaty um, and expanded U.S. national boundaries even more. After the Civil War, the United States. Uh, the government and also American uh, private businessmen continued to directly influence events in Mexico, but they did so without any intention of acquiring more territory or enlarging America's national boundaries. And what emerged after the French intervention was a more stable Mexican government. Prior to the Civil War, um, the Mexican government had changed uh, the, the presidency. There had been I think over three dozen presidents of Mexico in a period of just a couple of decades. Uh, a lot there were a lot of, of coups, revolutions. Um, Santa Ana himself was president of Mexico eleven different times, so he had been unable, obviously, to to sustain power um, over the 1830s and 40s and 50s. After the French intervention ends, uh, Benito Juarez re reclaims power. Um, and, uh, and holds the presidency for a few more years. And eventually, in 1876, Porfirio Diaz becomes president. And that's really a transformative moment in the history of, of Mexico and the United States and the borderlands because Diaz is able to hold power as president, as, essentially as a dictator, for 35 years, which was a complete polar opposite from the previous several decades of Mexican independence where there had been dozens of presidents and nobody had been able to hold power. But And so what this political stability sort of enables is a, a borderlands environment where the United States government and especially uh, capitalist um, corporations and businessmen are able to to influence events in Mexico and especially to uh, to profit from Mexico, um, but without taking literal possession of Mexico, without going to war with Mexico. So the Civil War and the French intervention really transform relations between the between the U.S. and Mexico um, because it, it brings in a, a new era where 
there's no longer um, you know direct threats of, of violence, uh, military intervention towards Mexico. Uh, you, I think it would be fair to say that it was far more peaceful between the U.S. and Mexico with respect to formal diplomatic relations, and also much more cooperative between the two countries. But at the same time, that uh, cooperation was occurring in a way that that almost exclusively benefited Americans, um, especially from an economic standpoint, and it eventually contributes very directly to the widespread dissent in Mexico against the Diaz regime that um, that erupts into the Mexican Revolution in 1910. So, in this sense, you know these these sort of machinations and scheming that were occurring in the in northern Mexico and in the borderlands during the Civil War era, and they they continued, but in a in a much more uh, in a in a way that was much less militaristic or violent and much more um, sort of economically oriented and cooperative to the benefit primarily of Americans and also of President Diaz and and, um, and those who were well-connected to him. And with respect to, you know, did stability ever arrive in these borderlands? I would, you know, I would say yes and no. Um, obviously, as I as I said a few minutes ago, Porfirio Diaz held power in Mexico for over three decades. So in, in a way, that is political stability that Mexico had not previously had, but it was also much more of a dictatorship that um, took a heavy toll on on much of the Mexican population. So it wasn't necessarily a good form of stability for the Mexican people. And, and it, it really sort of culminates in the Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1920, which was an extremely violent period. Over 2 million Mexicans were killed um, and, uh, you know, a very, very high level of political instability during that decade. And I think that in some ways you could uh, you could look back to the Civil War and all, especially um, South Texas and Northeastern Mexico and all of the, um, you know, the the economic connections that were established during the Civil War, a lot of smuggling going on, a lot of illicit commerce. And I think there are, are direct connections to be drawn between the Civil War era and the way that it enabled those forms of, of, uh, of illicit operations in the borderlands and the modern era where where we see uh, you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, arms trafficking, uh, and and the U.S.-Mexico border continues to be a very much a borderlands within the you know, the academic definition of that term. You know, a place of contested sovereignty, contested power. Neither the U.S. government nor the Mexican government are able to really firmly control the border. Um, the drug cartels in Mexico today have an incredible amount of power and control along the border, and the course of events there. Um, both with respect to, to drugs and human smuggling. So what we see along the U.S.-Mexico border today is kind of a modern reincarnation of the uncontrollable chaos that arose on that same border during the American Civil War. It's just that now that chaos revolves around different issues than it did 100 and, 160 years ago. 160 years ago, it was, you know, um, uh, smuggling cotton and contraband, war material, um, and uh, and various other articles. And today, you know, it's um, it, it's more oriented towards um, towards drugs, weapons, and uh, and human trafficking. So, I think in this sense, one of the takeaways that I hope readers will have from my book is that the Civil War era is really a point that we can look at to help us understand the modern U.S.-Mexico border and the struggles that um, uh, that it poses to um, not just to to the U.S. government and the Mexican government, but also to um, to regional actors on both sides of the border. And, and, you know, it can help us understand some of the origins of that, um, that contested, complicated environment along the border. And, you know, I think that that that's really important and for us to think about that also within this context of the greater reconstruction theme to bring this back full circle 
um, because that greater reconstruction after the Civil War is what really enabled the United States to um, to project in higher levels of power and control over the border during the Diaz regime and, and kind of set the stage for where we are at now um, with respect to the, the U.S.-Mexico border. And then for my last question, as we begin to wrap up here, I always like to uh, uh, get a preview from my guests about what they are working on next. And uh, uh, you've written several books, and I'm wondering if you have another one kind of coming down the pike. What have you been working on in the interim, Billy? I do have another one. Um, it uh, should be out in 2025, so about a year and a half or so. Um, a very different topic. It does uh, involve, it somewhat involves the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. There's one chap, you know, one or two chapters on the U.S.-Mexico border, but it's much broader. And it looks at, um, uh, it looks at Indian scalp bounties and scalp hunting across all of colonial North America from the 1600s to the 1800s uh, within a context of Native American genocide. Um, I recently had an article on this topic. It was published in the Journal of American History in June of 2023, so just a few months ago. And that article is based on one chapter from this forthcoming book. Um, the article deals with uh, Chihuahua and Sonora and the scalp bounties that the local governments there passed in the 1840s, uh, specifically aimed towards the, the Chiricahua Apaches. But the book takes a much more expansive look at uh, at scalp hunting and extra lethal violence, and uh, and arguments for um, related to Native American genocide. Uh, it looks at um, at the uh, the British Northeast in the sixteen and seventeen hundreds. It looks at the French colonies in Canada and Louisiana in the seventeen hundreds. It looks at uh, Texas in the eighteen thirties and forties and fifties, um, and also specifically at the Texas Rangers and also at California during the gold rush era. So uh, that'll be out with Yale University Press. It's under contract with them now um, and should be out in about a year and a half or so. Well, when it comes out, we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about it. Sounds good to me. Dr. Billy Kaiser is an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and is the author of Illusions of Empire, the Civil War and Reconstruction in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, which came out just last year in 2022 with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Billy. My pleasure.